And once again, I ask you to bow with me in prayer that God would be honored in our hearts and our minds and in the preaching of his word. Father, how blessed we are to have your good and true word here this morning. That we here on a small corner in a small town in the great state of Texas can know and hear your voice through the power of the Holy Spirit because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. We have your true word inspired and inerrant in all its ways. So Father, fill us, fill this place with your Holy Spirit. Fill us now. Give us ears to hear. Guard our hearts and minds. Father, have your way with us. Be honored in the preaching of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Alexander Hamilton hated John Adams. John Adams hated Alexander Hamilton. And John Adams wasn't even the one that shot him. These guys were in the same political party. They were on the same team. If you went back a few years, both played an integral role in laying the bedrock upon which the United States as a nation was built. John Adams was much of the power and the wisdom of the Declaration of Independence. He served as George Washington's vice president for two terms and went on to become the second president of the United States. A little history lesson for the kids in the back. Uh, Alexander Hamilton was the brainchild and energy of much behind much of what became the U.S. Constitution. And in becoming the first Secretary of the Treasury in George Washington's cabinet, he proved to be the power and the impetus behind much of what George Washington accomplished. He was a mover and a shaker. Both John Adams and Alexander Hamilton were Federalists. That was their political party. They sought after a strong government in contrast to the Republicans, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison, who wanted stronger states' rights. When John Adams became president, Hamilton continued to seek influence, with the pres influence within the president's cabinet particularly so after George Washington's death. Adams came to hate Hamilton and his manipulations. Hamilton loathed Adams' presidential idling. Hamilton said of Adams' incompetencies, the man does not possess the talents adapted to the administration of government, and there are great and intrinsic defects in his character which unfit him for the chief magistrate. It's not how you make friends. After Alexander Hamilton died in a duel, John Adams said, Vice, folly, and villainy are not to be forgotten because the guilty wretch repented in his dying moments. These are the tip of the iceberg of their mountain-esque animosities. And these guys were supposedly on the same team. Saints, we stand right now on uncertain ground as we look ahead to 2021. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. 
But on a grander scale, we do stand on the certain ground between the cross and the return of Jesus Christ. We have the promise that all will be made right. Sin still entangles us. Sin still ensnares us. But is Jesus coming? Yes. Absolutely. With God promised certainty. Can we expect difficult days ahead? Uh Uh-huh. That promise is sure too. So how are we to live in such days? Throughout the year and the opportunities I've had to preach, we've gone through, today we'll conclude all of Romans 12, but we've also dipped our toe in Romans 13. We actually started out in Romans 12, 14 through 21, when we looked at what Paul said to the believers in Rome and how they should conduct themselves among unbelievers. Then we went to Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, and looked at how the saints should conduct themselves within a government or under a government that may actually hate them. Whether you get along with the government or not, whether you agree with the government or not, what is our responsibility as Christians within the government? We preached on that. Then this fall, we went back all the way to the start of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, to see how God assembles the churches, how God gifts everyone within the body of Christ, all those who are saved. And unites us as a church, enables each one in the church to be a pipeline of God's blessings to the other saints. He gifts and enables each one for that purpose. That this people, that this church, this bride of Christ might be built up, strengthened, and continue glorifying him in these challenging days ahead. But what happens when in using those gifts, when in fellowship with one another, we bump into each other and friction builds up? How do we prevent ourselves from becoming embittered toward and hating our brothers and sisters in Christ like John Adams and Alexander Hamilton? In today's small section of Romans 12, Paul gives the church a sweet exhortation to that end. To that we turn in hope, knowing that we must cling to Christ and lock arms in the church like never before. Follow along with me in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. The first thing we'll see today is that if we profess to love Christ, we will love the church. We will love the church. He says, let love be genuine. At the start of verse 9, at the start of verse 10, he says, Let love one another with brotherly affection. In between, he says, Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. That seems like a strange interjection in the midst of that sentence. We'll take a look at this. But what we see, this is not a, gee, wouldn't that be nice if we did love one another? Wouldn't that be nice if we all get along? It's something we should do. 
No, it's not a should, a could, a would. It's a command. It is a straight command to love one another. Now, as we're looking at this passage, we have to understand that all of this in chapter 12, chapter 13, and actually through chapter 15 is anchored on the first two verses of chapter 12. So I invite you to look up to the start of the chapter where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In chapter 12, verse 1, he exhorts us that in light of all that God has done, your response is worship. Your response is, here am I, Lord. We are willing, we ought be willing and eager to do the master's bidding. In verse 2, he highlights that we are aware of Satan's designs. We understand that the world is going to try and push us like Play-Doh into its mold so that we would look like the world. God says, no, don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind through his word, through his spirit within the church. So after highlighting the giftedness of each one in the church for the building up of the church and each within the church and for the glory of God, he exhorts them then to, within that power, love one another. You might think, shouldn't I love everybody? Are you supposed to love everybody? Yes, but this section here is particularly pointed to believers. By implication then, if he's exhorting us to love believers, there's going to be a tendency for the flesh to build up and boil up and for us to maybe not get along within the church. But notice, in verse 10, he speaks of brotherly affection. To love one another within the church. Verse 13 highlights that he's speaking to the saints about the saints in this particular passage. So if love is then to be genuine, what is love? We all know the verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whosoever believe in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. God's love for the world did not remain hidden. There was action with it. He did something. Love is more than affection, but it is certainly not less than affection. It is wanting the best. In wanting the best, in desiring the best for another person, sin cannot be sustained. This is why that statement, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good, is so profound and relevant within these two statements on loving one another. The idea of abhorrence, to abhor something, is like recoiling, like, oh, that's, that's vile, that's, that's disgusting. 
Why would anybody do this? Why would anybody go there? We have to have this abhorrence of evil in our sin nature. It is natural for us to incline toward that which we should abhor. And so he exhorts believers in knowing what is evil, you must abhor that thing. Have a revulsion toward that. So in loving my brothers, and we'll we'll talk more about this here in just a bit with regard to the genuineness of it, I can't, I can't overlook sin. I have to desire that my brothers and sisters in Christ would be restored and full in their relationship with the living God. So love, he says, love must be genuine. The word is not a hypocrite, not hypocritical, not a mask wearer. Oh, I love you. Not so much. You know, I, I just put the smile, smile on your face and, you know, I shake hands like, eh, that guy. You know, where to your face I am kind and loving, but behind your back it's like, not so much. That's not genuine love. That's fake. You're playing an actor. You have to be the real deal in the church. God's love is genuine. He begs us. He commands us that our love be genuine. And that flows back into this idea of abhorrence. If I love God, if my love for God is genuine, I will not ignore the evil in my own life. If my love for God is genuine, I will not ignore the evil in my own life. But if that's true in my own life, why would I do it in my brother's life? If my love for you is genuine, I can't ignore the evil in your life either. Now, that's not license for me to be a busybody. You know, looking for, you know, I'm just scouring Facebook posts. Oh, there, you know, oh, jump on that. You know, no. But if in the church we are acting like the church and we are interrelated with the church, we are going to see our warts. Who knows my sin better than anybody else in the room but these two people over here? Yeah. Why? Because they live with me. They see it in spades. Okay, but that's what's going to happen if we have interrelatedness in the church. And so we ought to exhort and encourage one another out of that. We need to abhor the evil. The holiness begins within the household of saints. You know, the world, of course, is going to be a mess, but let us examine ourselves. You know, you think of a child and a child would beg his alcoholic father to cease his ways. A brother would beg his promiscuous sister in a family to cease her ways. If that's the case within a family, 
How much more so, how much less so in the church? It ought not be. I mean, we ought to be that way. We ought to beg one another to turn from our sin. So as those things come up in our relationships, Paul tells the church at Galatia, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, lest we think that this love then is just a clinical, surgical response, you know, uh, with regard to snipping sin out there, like a surgeon in an operating room, God, God argues here in Romans 12 that love must include our affections. Look at verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Affection. Jesus, we go, so what's that look like? Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 13 that Justin read at the start of the service, love one another as I have loved you. I mean, God the Son walked with a bunch of goobers. I mean, these were imperfect guys. They're not getting it through the whole walk in their three years together. And Jesus loved those guys. Love one another, brothers, as I have loved you. This brotherly affection is exhorted in Hebrews 13, 1. Let brotherly love continue. It's happening in the church. Let it continue. Why does he exhort it? Because it's going to stop. It is something we must be aware of and conscious of. I must love my brothers. It's also cautionary because it's brotherly love. Let brotherly love continue. There's a hint of caution in there to be careful about your relationships. How far ought they to go in your love for one another? You know, it's a great, intense, wonderful, spirit-induced brotherly love. If it starts tipping into romanticism and eros, especially amongst those who are married, or as far as... uh, Relationships outside of marriage, care must be taken in there. So how do we help? How do I, how do I cultivate perhaps this brotherly love amongst the saints? He goes on to say in verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. I am to honor you. How do I honor you? I have to know you. What do I know about you at the very least? You are an image bearer of the living God. That alone deserves honor right there. If you are a member of the body, if you are a believer, you are not only an image bearer, but a gift sharer. You are sharing the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the body. I have to honor you. For that, I get to, not I have to, I get to honor you. And if you are in the body, you are my sibling. You are my brother. You are my sister in Christ. How else might I honor you? 
I have to know who you are. Again, this exhorts us to cultivate relationship within the body. If I am to outdo you in showing honor, it cannot be fake. Who are you? I must know you. How do I know you? I'm kind to you. I'm courteous to you. I converse with you. I spend time with you. It must begin with relationship. That's really easy for some people. Some, uh, my youngest son thrives in a sea of people. Some people don't thrive in a sea of people. Some people thrive only in one-on-one. That's okay. I would encourage you, if you are a loner at heart, and you like to be off by yourself, not to be that way in the church. It is not good for man to be alone. We need each other. And you may feel awkward in your conversation. You may feel stilted. That's okay. There's none of us perfect. We need each other. Let us come together. God's people truly must love one another. In his epistle, John wrote in 1 John 3.10, he goes so far as to say that if you do not love the brothers, you are not of God. You're not. Whoever loves God must love his brother. 1 John 4.21 So the first step Paul shares in our locking relational arms with one another is truly to love one another. But then he encourages us within the body to be about our business. Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Do not be slothful in zeal. It seems like a contradiction, an oxymoron. Don't be lazy in being zealous. Be zealous. Be overflowing. Robert Mounts referred to it as being aglow with the Spirit. Paul says be fervent in Spirit. Again, whenever there's a command, our tendency is the other thing. We tend to be spiritually inert. A body at rest likes to stay at rest. I don't want to move. The mundane nature of life drags me down. And our excuses are legion. I've been so busy. I'm already doing... Well, you know, I'm going to do that thing, but I just need to first... Well, when I get older, when I get to this point in my life, maybe... There are times, indeed, where we are truly busy. And one of the most powerful words in Christian ministry is, no, can't. That's okay. That's okay. But we must be self-examining to determine, am I just being inert? Am I not using my gifts within the church? Because he exhorts us not to go that way, to be fervent in spirit, to kindle that excitement about serving the living God. It's not, it's not 
Farrell's song, just happy because I'm happy. Uh, it, Bobby McFerrin, don't worry, be happy. Just be happy. And what? There's a book by a guy named Maxwell Maltz in the 70s. He's a big you know, self-help guy. Act enthusiastic and you'll be enthusiastic. God exhorts us to rejoice always. So, of what do you have? What do I have to be truly excited about? One, God has given you life and He sustains you. Two, God has called you His beloved. Three, despite you, He has redeemed you. Despite me, he has redeemed me. Despite you, he will not forsake you and he will not abandon you. Despite you, he has worked in and through your past to bring you to this point and will continue the good work that he began in you to help you be the man or woman he desires you to be. Why should I be happy? Number six, he has provided you and me our needs for this day. Why should I be happy? Number seven, he has grafted you into a church and gifted you for his glory and the growth of that church. Number eight, he has given us a world that retains a loveliness even amidst its brokenness. What do you have to be happy about? Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God has done. Rejoice in the Lord. In this world you will have troubles. Be of good cheer. He has overcome the world. Rejoice in the Lord. I don't get how people can live without Christ. Despair, darkness, misery, pain, hopelessness, failure. It would kill me. And with all of that joy, serve the Lord. How? How not? You know, you can serve him within the church. You can serve him by playing an instrument. You can serve him by singing. You can serve him by teaching. You can serve him by cleaning toilets. You can serve him by being in a discipleship relationship. Either way, by being discipled and feeding off those who are willing to pour into you their life's experiences or doing it yourself the other way. Within the church, we have some senior saints. Most of them are, you know, they have enough family around to take care of them. Some don't. So to be kind and helpful to the seniors in your area. How do you serve the Lord? Perhaps you can, outside of the church, love the forgotten. Maybe there's somebody in your neighborhood who seems to be pretty much alone 
know, during Christmas or holiday, nobody's ever at their house. You see them take their trash to the street, and that's about it. Helping at the Pregnancy Help Center. Talking to someone who has no friends. How can you serve the Lord? Stop and talk to somebody on the street in your neighborhood. Grill some hot dogs. How can you show, how can you serve the Lord? Maybe you can just show kindness and grace in the midst of political discussions. You know, and not say, hey, you're a jerk. Whoa, wouldn't that that'd be incredible? Or religious discussions. To hear somebody who disagrees with you, who doesn't believe in Christianity and thinks it's a bunch of hogwash, and you go, oh, you know, why do you think that? You know, what are some of the, how did you come to these conclusions? And just listen to them. You know, and if, if, if they ask you a question, oh, you, then you have an opportunity to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Simply ask questions with kindness and grace. God exhorts us to love the saints. God exhorts us to be busy about the things he has for us to do. And lastly, he exhorts us in the final verses, 11 or in verse 12, to keep our eyes on the future. Keep our eyes on the future. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Rejoice in hope even amidst dark days. Why? Because this is not the end. As bad as it gets, glory is in front of us. If I go to the stake, I can go. That's yeah, probably going to hurt. But Jesus Christ, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. For the joy set before him, for the joy that he looked to, in between him and that joy was the cross. But it's like focusing on your finger. You know, your finger's right in front of you, but I'm not looking at my finger, I'm looking at you. I'm looking to my ultimate destination. This tribulation that we might be enduring is brief. It is but a moment, Paul says. The guy who was lashed, the guy that was shipwrecked, the guy that was stoned. (laughs) It's just for a moment. Rejoice in hope. It's interesting the wording there. Rejoice in hope. Our hope is so great. All that we have in front of us is so extraordinary, it should cause us to rejoice. Paul told the Corinthians, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. You ain't got a clue how great it's going to be. We got revelation, we go, Wow, that's extraordinary. And that's like just the tip of the iceberg. 1 Corinthians 2.9. So 
as we have this great hope, we rejoice. And that helps us to be patient in our tribulation. Because yes, there is a better day. Yes, in the midst of tribulation, that's when the whys and the whens and the wherefores are going to tumble forth. And there is a difference. Asking why is not a bad thing. Asking why in a pleading Job-like fashion is fine. Asking why in an accusatory, how dare you fashion is not fine. But that ought not be the heart of the saint. We understand God's sovereign hand over all, even in the midst of difficulty. And we may want to go, why? Why? There is real pain. There is real sorrow. There is real tragedy. There is real sin. There is real evil. That if it doesn't make you wonder what God is doing, man, you are completely numb in your heart. But God calls his people to cast your anxieties upon me because I care for you. 1 Peter 5, 7. As I read earlier, Romans eight thirty two, he did not spare his own son. How will he not graciously give us all things? So we rejoice in hope. We are patient in tribulation. We are constant in prayer. Being constant in prayer, especially for the brothers, keeps our eyes on the future. Yes, it prays for things now, but we understand that those of us who are in the family of God are going to a better place. Yes, we have that sure hope, but we are struggling in this life under the sun, and so we pray for one another. How? When? Constantly. We are constant in our prayers. How important is prayer? How important are lines of communication in a battle? You know, the whole idea in warfare to mess up the enemy is to cut lines of communication. If the general cannot command his front lines, chaos is going to be out there. They may end up shooting at each other. God, what do you want me to do? Let me hear your word. How better to cultivate that love for my brothers and sisters when I am away from them than to pray for them. So, this is, this is one of the most difficult disciplines, no doubt, within the church. And it's prayer. And so I challenge you to pray. You know, New Year's resolution. Here it is. Pray. When? Yes. Pray without ceasing. Okay, Okay, that's easy. I can just pray in my car. No. Yes. Yes, pray without ceasing. Yes. But also, set aside time. I'm not asking you to pray for three hours. Set aside five minutes. You get, if you pick up a bulletin. There's three things to pray for in the bulletin. Pray for a, a family member, a member of the church. Pray for our missionary. Pray for a government official. Okay, every week, somebody new, take it home. Those three things, five minutes. And then maybe once a week, schedule a longer time, you and God, you and him, to 
read his word, to hear his voice. Psalms are always a great place to start. And then to pray more fervently, more specifically for the needs. Oftentimes we have leftover prayer bulletins in the back from Wednesday nights. Take one. You may not understand what the little snippets mean, but he does. And so pray for those things. I don't know what this surgery is that so-and-so is going through or what so-and-so's brother's dealing with, but you can pray. God can fill in the blanks. Oh, saint, please be constant in prayer. You know, as we look forward, we understand you can't take it with you. You, you can't take it with you. As much as the Egyptians might have wanted to, as the pharaohs entombed with all their jewels and splendor and pyramids for that whole purpose, you can't take it with you. And so don't be a miser. Don't be a hoarder. Be a conduit of God's blessings upon you. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. We've already talked about contributing to the needs of the saints with regard to spiritual gifts, but he means it money too. Sometimes people in our church are hurting financially. Who better to care for them than those who are in close proximity, family and the church? Government, here's your $600 help check because of this, because you shut down my business. Thanks a lot. No, right here, we care for one another. We contribute to the needs of the saints. And we show hospitality. Okay, hospitality then is different than hospitality now. Hospitality is not just having somebody over for dinner. Yeah, okay, that's hospitality on a wee little small scale. Hospitality is when their house got flooded because of a water main and they got no place to stay while they're going to have all kinds of renovations. And you're going to ask them into your house. But what about my stuff? What about your stuff? It's going to burn. It's going to break. It's probably going to break next week anyway. What if it gets broke by a little kid? So what? It's a thing. We're supposed to show hospitality to the saints. We are supposed to bring them in to our homes. Used to be in the town square, people would walk through on their journeys and need a place to stay, and there wasn't a Motel 6. So you go and go, hey, why don't you, I, I have no idea who you two are, but I got, I got a room and we got some food. Hot dogs, probably going to just be hot dogs and chips. But, you know, bummer if you're a vegetarian. We'll find something for you. Open your house, open your home. And, And really, because of our culture, that need to show hospitality, we almost wash our hands of it because of Big Brother. Oh, the government's going to take care of them. No, the government stinks at taking care of people down at the grassroots level. That's my responsibility to you. That's your responsibility to me. 
And we have to seek. We have to show it. We have to have our eyes open to see it that we might do this thing. Church cannot be mere attendance. We've been gifted, you and me, to carry out God's spiritual purpose in the body of Christ. That as a unit, we together might be a sweet bride of Christ. But we must have relationship. We must love one another. We must not become idle, but fervently serve the Lord. We must have our eyes set upon our future hope so that we would have a right perspective in our prayers and our ministerings to one another. At the start of the revolution, Alexander Hamilton and John Adams got along just fine. They were on the same team, striving for the same purpose. In 25 years, they hated each other. To start out together in the church with the hope and the joy of our salvation and to end up with hatred toward one another that should they die, you would scoff and say good riddance. Let us understand that that is a real possibility even within the church. And unless we purpose in our hearts to cling to and love Christ and desire a better way by loving one another even more in 2021 as the day approaches, oh, let us strive to that end. There is a better way. Us in this church. If we think we are immune, we do not know our enemy very well. Let's pray. God, thank you for these exhortations from Paul to the church at Rome, to a small church on Nathan Travis. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of Christ in our lives, help us to love one another as you have lavished your love upon us. We beg in Jesus' name. Amen.